Welcome to the Vulnerable Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Almeida. Each week, we'll share inspiring stories and tips on facing vulnerability and the lessons we can use to help us be able to find success and fulfillment in our own lives. With each episode, we hope to impact one listener. And if anything you've heard has impacted you, we'd appreciate you sharing it on social. Thank you for listening. Now let's get vulnerable. Kamal Ravikant said, Sometimes the only way to evolve is to open ourselves fully. This is episode 49 of the Vulnerable Podcast with Jay Schiffman. As a preteen, his parents sent him to therapy, which unfortunately would end up leading to addiction years later. He was diagnosed like many other kids of his generation with ADHD, and by 11 years old, he was already on his first medication. At one point in time, he had a backpack full of medication and was taking handfuls of pills. It would lead to a suicide attempt and then spending time in a long-term care facility. From there, he ended up with his grandparents to withdraw from all the drugs he was taking because he decided he was done with it all. Now he's a speaker telling his story of issues with mental health, substance misuse, and recovery, as well as the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He wants to do his part in ending the stigma around mental health and helping others to avoid the struggles with medication like he once did. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get vulnerable with Jay Schiffman. Hey, Jay, thank you for coming on the Vulnerable Podcast. Uh, I'm excited to have you on here today. You're one of uh, the first few people that replied back uh, from the, the podcastguest.com newsletter that was had a bunch of people sign up on. So uh, I, I read a little bit about your story and I just definitely appreciate you coming on here to share it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I know we're not, we're not getting paid to advertise podcastguest.com, but it's been huge as a fellow podcaster myself. I, I've found so many people off there and getting connected with you is wonderful. So thank you for having me and thank you for podcast guests for making it possible. Yeah, awesome. So the first question that I ask every guest to get started is what is your definition of vulnerability? Yeah, so um, real quick as by way of intro, I'm an addiction and mental health speaker, writer, consultant, coach, and advocate. And in my consultant work with businesses, this comes up all the time. We all know those leaders, those quote unquote leaders who come to work and they shut their office door and they go home and their, their employees, I mean, you, you might as well not be at work, right? I mean, what's the point if you aren't actually leading the leaders who really have an opportunity to make a difference. The ones who impact their coworkers and their employees' lives are the ones that lead with vulnerability. And that is, I, I mean this wholeheartedly. When I work with businesses, that is the number one tip I give. It's the first one and the last one. You have to walk the walk. If you are telling people, you know, to come in and clock in and do their best, but then you're, you know, not really doing it. It, it shines false and people can see that. So for me, vulnerability is such an important piece and it's one that's been forgotten. Personally, it means leading with openness. It means not holding anything back. You know, we all know those people who go above and beyond, who uh, sort of, they're just overflowing with empathy, right? They understand people in a meaningful way. That is the sort of vulnerability that, makes a difference. That's the sort of vulnerability that leaves an impact when it goes both ways, when it's not someone just saying, here, let me tell you about me, but it's also, and now I'm opening myself up to be there for you. Oh, awesome. And that's uh, what I, and I always say this, but it's always interesting to me how everybody's definition is different. And what I appreciated about yours is how you started off with the leadership piece, just because I think that that's one thing that may, is important for, for listeners, at least to pick up on is that, you know, for you to be a leader in any type of way, whether it's in business or in your own life, that you have to sort of lead with the vulnerability yourself. And, and that's, Again, I just think it's a key point because a lot of people, I feel they think vulnerability is just sort of about sharing and, and you know, just being open and, you know, my life sucks sort of thing when that's <laughs> not really what it is at all. Um, so, yeah, I just I appreciate what you had to say there. So Thank you. the first, uh, sorry, <laughs> what would you say would be your earliest memory and go back as far as you want, totally up to you, of facing some sort of vulnerability or struggle in your own life? Yeah, so I, I will say that um, I unfortunately don't have a whole lot of memories for early in my life. Uh, for those of you who have not uh, listened to my podcast or who have not interacted with me before, I'm 10 years in recovery from a prescription pill addiction that uh, sadly wiped out a lot of my memories. I've been working with my own therapist on 
how many of those are truly gone and how many of those are just buried under a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and uh, that's ongoing work that, you know, is, is sort of probably going to be ongoing for a long time. And through our work, uh, weird memories come back and I'm like, Oh, I forgot about that. You know? So it's, it's really interesting in that way. But I will say that the sort of big picture that the biggest one would be when I was a preteen and my parents uh, connected me with the, the therapist that would sort of be my companion for the next decade. Uh, and really, you know, I, I identify that choice to open up to him and to be vulnerable to him as one of the true turning points of my life because, it, it, you know, I wholeheartedly believe that there are parts of that relationship that were incredibly helpful for me in my, my teenage years. But there was also a lot that, that, was not. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. And, um, you know, I don't blame him per se for the struggles with addiction that I started going through seven, eight years later, but he was certainly a key factor in that equation and sort of what led me to that. That was my desire, uh, or my decision to be open and vulnerable with him, and again, it was that two-way street. It was not only letting him in, but then also allowing him to have the influence. Uh, and so uh, I know that we're supposed to be talking about vulnerability in a good way, but unfortunately, that was one where it ended up going a very different direction. No, and, and there's no real like good, bad, whatever. I mean, like we'll, we'll get through that as, as the podcast goes on and um, really pull sort of, I guess, what you may have learned from that. But one thing I, I, I guess I want to ask is you said you started going into therapy at a preteen. Was there anything that led to that that you can remember? Just because it seems like that's pretty early on um, that, that I can imagine. I mean, I haven't gone through any myself, so I can't really say, but it just seems to me that as a preteen for you to have to be sort of led down that path, was there any reasons that you can remember for that? Well, it is very early, um, and it's definitely in the extreme minority who go that early. For me, um, I was born in 1986. I'm 33 currently. Same. And, <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so our generation was sort of the beginnings of what is still an ongoing experiment around treating ADHD in children. So uh, for me, I was first put on medicine at 11 uh, in 1997. Oh. Um, and that's, that was why I started going to therapy. And while uh, back then I was in the extreme minority, it has gotten more common to the point where, uh, about a year ago, a buddy of mine sat down with me and uh, over lunch and told me that his seven year old was being, uh, recommended for Ritalin and, and he was picking my brain about that experience. And so I was 11, this kid was seven. I mean, so we're even getting earlier now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but to answer your question, that's why is that I was very rambunctious. I was, you know, every, I was a poster child for this sort of treatment of ADHD. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it, in some ways, it seems to me that it was good that maybe your parents recognized that and went down that direction. But in other ways, like you said, I guess it it helped and hindered you in, in different ways. Um, you know, what, I don't know how to, I'm just trying to think of how to word this next question. But, you know, would you would you say that looking back, if if you had have had more, I guess, um, insight as to what was going on, or if you had, a, I guess, at that age, you're not as mature, I guess, but if you had had more of an idea of what was going on, would you have maybe not welcomed that decision by your parents? Or do you still believe that, you know, it was a good decision by your parents? That's a, a wonderful question. And it's one that I'm asked a lot. And I, I will say it's sort of a two part answer. The first is, I wish that uh, one of the things I work on when I talk to both individuals and big groups is that we have to be having these conversations. If I had known that there was uh, issues of mental health that ran in my family, if I had known a lot that I know now about how the brain responds to uh, being inundated with chemicals at an early age, 100%, 1,000%, I would have changed the way we approached as a family, not only my diagnosis with ADHD, but also I have multiple brothers who were diagnosed with, with similar things. So in that response, the answer is definitely yes. Now, the other end is we are now at a place where so many people are being um, told that they have these issues that we're moving beyond sort of the one-to-one -one equation of you have it, you're prescribed chemicals. I mean, it, it used to be for 
probably a decade and a half, that was how it, it went every time. And now we're getting to a point where my buddy who's seven year old was told that, you know, he needs this, this medication. There are other options. There are other, there are schools that are specifically uh, tailored towards children who have this issue. And, and, and at the same time, we're, we're starting to realize that the modern uh, or, or the, the way that schooling and teaching is set up is very, very antiquated. And so you're seeing some places start to change that a little bit to better suit the modern child. And so that, that's obviously a much larger, much yeah, larger yeah. discussion. But, but the answer to your question is yes and no, depending on uh, the, the, the situation. I definitely would say, you know, look, I'm not a doctor. I want to say that very clearly. Um, what we know now about the brain says you should not be putting, you know, that many chemicals into a young child, unless it's, you know, we're talking life or death situations. But there are also people who still say that these chemicals can really help. So, you know, it is definitely not a black and white situation, uh, and it's a much deeper discussion. No, for sure. And uh, so. The other thing that just came to mind as you're talking about that and even just the age that you started to go through this, was there any sort of, uh, you know, vulnerabilities or, or any difficulties that this sort of presented in school, um, being such a young age and, and I'm sure, you know, having friends and peers and stuff like that, was there anything that sort of came up in, in that part of your life? Oh, definitely. I, um, like I said, I was the poster child for this. I was, you know, if this was the, the 1950s and we're, we're talking Whoville, I would have been called the class clown, right? I was always, <laughs> always falling out of my seat. I was more concerned with making my friends laugh than I was with getting good grades. Um, I set records for detention in like fifth and sixth grade, <laughs> you know, uh, in fact, actually in sixth grade, I did the math and I was in detention over a third of the year. So it, it, yeah, I just, you know, I was, and I wasn't a bad kid. I was never the kid who was like hurting people. I wasn't a bully. I was just rambunctious. I was just easily distracted. Uh, but at the same time, I was lucky in the respect that I wasn't alone. I had a lot of people going through what I was going through. Uh, we had entire groups of friends who were, were all on medications together. So um, in that respect, I was very lucky. But on the other side, you know, I definitely noticed how it was making me feel and how I didn't really like it. And uh, in, I want to say 10th grade, one of the other guys and I decided together we were going to go off our, our drugs. And I think we both lasted about two weeks and, and it, you know, cause when you try to get off that stuff, it messes with your head too. And so, um, it was sort of a, a damned if you do damned if you don't situation. Yeah, no kidding. I, I, and, and I've heard that in multiple cases and whether it's, you know, younger or adulthood, when you start to go on a lot of these medications, I, you know, fortunately haven't gone on any in, in my lifetime and I try and stay away. I, I don't know if sir, there's some, there's some part of me that has a self belief that that's not necessarily the answer. And I've, I've always, you know, whenever I've had anybody, a doctor or whatever, prescribe me anything, I have a lot of questions to ask just, and I, and again, I don't know where that comes from. I, I there, it's not like I've read a bunch of books or anything like that. I do have family that's had their struggles and, and, and things that have led to certain medications, but just some part of me is always been a little weary about whether that's the the right answer the right way to go but um but yeah so i, I just I, for me it's it's interesting that you were able to not only go through that like on your own but with other people and i didn't even know that at that point in time it sounds like it was something that was coming up a lot uh, i i don't know if I, maybe i even had friends that we're facing the same sort of thing. Like it just, it's shocking to me um, in, in some ways because I just, like I said, I didn't know. And I don't think a lot of us are aware that that was sort of going on at that point in time. Well, so two things, first off props to you for, for being hesitant to take, you know, pills. Again, I believe strongly that they do help a lot of people. I have very close people in my life who are on different uh, mood stabilizers and the like. Um, but that it's not universal whatsoever. And I have a really sad story very quickly. Like I said, I'm in recovery and, uh, that means I don't take anything unless I absolutely have to. I even hesitate to take Advil. And, um, I, a couple of years ago I was in a car accident and luckily I'm fine. You know, everything was okay, but I did have a concussion and at the hospital, they, I'm, I'm, you know, dazed, I'm woozy. And they're like, here, you know, here's a prescription for name some, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, whatever it was, right? I have no idea. But it was something for the pain. And I wasn't in that much pain. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm okay. In fact, I'm in recovery. I don't, I don't really do that. 
And the nurse said, well, I have to give this to you. I said, I don't, I don't think you do. And also <laughs> whatever pain I'm going to be in for the next week is worth it to not potentially, like, I don't know how this will affect me. It could kill me. Like I could literally three days from now be looking for heroin on the street. Like, don't give this to yeah, me. Yeah. And she said, well, you know, I really have to give it to you. And we ended up getting into a shouting match and she went and got the doctor and the doctor was just you have to take this. I have to give you this prescription. And I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take this prescription. And he literally came over to me and slammed it into my hands. And meanwhile, I'm still on the table, the exam table, woozy from a car accident. He puts it in my hands and I look him in dead in the eye and I rip it up. And he was like, you know what? Fine. Screw it. I gave it to you whatever and walked out of the room. And luckily I was so pissed off that day, even in my like concussed state that I tore up this prescription because who knows, who knows I could have been perfectly fine or I could have had a really bad relapse and died. So we have no idea. And, and that is sort of unfortunately the state of the, the medical system that, you know, even where you have a guy screaming at you, I don't want to relapse. They're still going to insist on putting the medicine in your hands. So um, you're, you're not wrong that, that to, to be weary of it, but you're also not wrong that this is something that goes on sort of underneath the surface. Even as I've now spoken out about, you know, what happened to me for sort of the, the years after high school, I had multiple people, in fact, that we were all in one class together, reach out and say, my story is almost identical to yours. And none of us knew that we were all going through this. And so it is uh, very sad. It's a lot bigger than we think. And it's also a lot uh, more personal than we think. Yeah, no, I I had no idea. Like, again, because I, I think the worst thing I did, you know, as a kid was I, I ended up um, on my bike and I was I was pedaling and for whatever reason, the plastic part of the pedal came off the bike and the metal piece that holds that went into my leg and cut me up Ew. pretty bad. But that's like the worst. And I, yeah, <laughs> but that's like the worst injury I've ever had. And all I had to do was have my sort of leg frozen and stitches done. And obviously they offered me something, but even like having my wisdom teeth pulled out, they offered to knock me out. And I was like, no, I'm good. Just freeze me up. And they were like, <laughs> nuts and i'm like well i don't like not knowing i don't like being in that sure. fear but the re- what i'm trying to get to with these personal stories is that what what sort of uh, what you're saying there is that it's sort of seen as like this universal sort of thing and i just had no idea that that's sort of how the medical system is because of the fact that i've never had to sort of be present in it too much so again you're you're just you're bringing up a lot of points here that are, are shocking to me because it, it it seems odd to me that you have a group of people and it's just like you all should be on this same thing. And, and it, yeah. yet, you know, we're each individuals, like we're each individual humans, our bodies all work differently. Our minds all work differently. Yet the medical system says, yeah, but I think you all should be on this same sort of drug. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting from my personal story was uh, from the time that I was first prescribed at 11 or 12, it, I think it was 11 to the time I got off, uh, pills for good at 23. I was on, I want to say it was either 12 or 13 different uh, oh, wow. pills and at different levels. And their answers were always, you know, when something wasn't working, it was, okay, maybe we should take a step back. No, no, no. It was, let's try something else or let's try a high, higher dosage. That was, it was one of those two things every time. And what you're seeing now, sort of fast, fast forward to 2020, uh, I went on a ride along about a, uh, about a month before the coronavirus hit with the, uh, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and I went with a uh, EMT and we went to, uh, she was specifically the person who went to suicide cases or, or similar mental health issues. And that's why I went with her. I wanted to see this firsthand. And all of the suicide cases we went to that day, every single person was on a different prescribed pill with no therapist work to go along with it. So all of these people were on very high levels of mind altering drugs every day and were not working with a therapist. And that is so common these days that we shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing a rash of more issues of mental health because all of these pills, it's, it, it, they don't hide the fact that it, it has some negative effects on when you first are getting used to it. I mean, that's anything will do that, especially something that changes the way you think. And for people not to be working with a therapist at the same time, it's scary. Uh, you know, I've, there's someone in my life who died from that reason. He started taking very high levels of prescri- prescribed pills and a month later took his life because he wasn't talking to anyone. He wasn't being vulnerable. He wasn't being open. And, and uh, it's, it's very scary. 
No, well, sorry to hear that for sure. And, and, you know, again, it's just, it's just, to me, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, I guess interesting, it may not be the right word, but it's interesting to me that, that a doctor wouldn't first prescribe, like, maybe like, let's go talk to a therapist and instead right away, just be like, here's something to to help you. And, and I mean, surprised somewhat, because I, I think I've seen the same thing in my own life now that you're making me sort of reflect on it. But you know, it, it, the, what I have seen that luckily is that very soon after it was sort of, it was almost like a joint thing where it was like, here's the drug, but also here's, you know, the information to go to some sort of therapy. So at least it seems like, and, and I don't know if it's different because I'm here in Canada, but, um, but at least I, I feel like maybe there's starting to be a slight shift in, in how things work compared to what you're saying, where it's just been for, for many years, like here's just this drug. And then if that doesn't work, here's the next one and the next one. Well, I hope so. And I definitely think there is a difference between what's happening down here, unfortunately, and what's up in Canada. But uh, I, I really, I hope you're right. I hope that we are seeing uh, sort of an over, a, a correction and even more than that, an overcorrection towards fixing that scenario. No, for sure. So uh, usually, you know, I would go back to that original story and say like, how did you overcome it? But it sounds like it took you quite a few years. So at, at the age of, I think you said 23, when you decided to sort of, you know, pull away from everything, uh, what what helped you get to there? Like, was it just the fact that all these things were having the negative effects on you? Or was there somebody or something that sort of helped you sort of pull away? Yeah, so <laughs> I've done you know two hours on this topic. I've done I can do it in ten minutes. So we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it real <laughs> quick here. But uh, essentially, fast forward. I I in my late teens, I start uh, according to the same therapist showing signs of a mood disorder. And now we know again what what you know the effects it has on your brain. We understand, you know, it's not surprising that my brain was going a little haywire. I'm a teenager. My brain is already going through crazy amounts of growth and transformation. Mm-hmm. And I'm on high, high rates of chemicals that I'm taking every day. So not surprising. But at the time, he said that and, and you know, my family went, oh, okay. Like, you know, that's what he says. So at this time, it's right around the year 2000. Uh, this is still, you know, very early in the, in the, the discovery of a lot of this stuff. So uh, by the time I'm then graduating high school, I'm being prescribed more pills on top of just the ADHD medication. I'm also taking mood stabilizers and anti, um, uh, anti-psychotics and all sorts of uh, drugs for the, the, what has been called a mood disorder, eventually is called bipolar disorder. Uh, too many drugs to the point where by the time I'm 21, I'm thoroughly hooked on all of them. I'm, I'm abusing every single one of my prescriptions. One of them, Clonopin, which is a very dangerous uh, medication. Uh, I'm taking them. You ever seen the show House? Uh, I like to use this analogy. The way that he pops his Valium, I'm doing that with handfuls of Clonopin multiple times a day. Uh, I'm carrying around a backpack everywhere I go full of pill canisters because that's how much pills that I'm taking every day. So my doctors knew this. They were they were refilling my uh, prescriptions a month a month of prescriptions in about 12 days by this point. That goes on for a couple of years as I get worse and worse. And by the time I'm 23 in the year 2000, uh, summer of 2009, I have nothing left. I spend all day on my couch. Every morning is withdrawal. I wake up and immediately rush to the bathroom uh, and, and I'm taking a pill before I even eat because if I don't, I'll go through withdrawals. It's terrible. And um, in the summer of 2009, I attempted suicide twice in two days. Uh, the second time, I overdosed and uh, I was arrested, not arrested. I was taken out of my house in handcuffs in a cop, uh, thrown into the backseat of a cop car and spent the night handcuffed to a bed at University of Cincinnati Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, so I survived, obviously. And the next day I come to, like I, I have this memory of all of a sudden coming to in a lockdown unit, uh, spent three weeks in this lockdown unit and got out of there. And in that lockdown unit, I started to really get to know some other people with very serious issues of mental health. And I started going, man, this doesn't really look like me. Like something looks a little different. Uh, but I didn't know what it was yet. I couldn't really put my, my thumb on it. And at this time, my therapist is still a very large presence in my life. And he tells my, my family and myself that I should go to this um, sort of inpatient uh, like long-term care facility in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And, you know, I didn't want to go. I very clearly said, I don't want to do this. Uh, the night before I got chipped off, I came in my parents' room. And I said, I'm not going. And they were like, well, tough. And I don't <laughs> blame them for that. Like, here's this 23-year-old who's out of his mind. 
And then you have a really well-respected therapist, one of the most respected in, in town, telling them he should do this. I mean, which are you going to side with, you know? <laughs> so I get sent off and I spend three months there. And what really finally influenced me to get off this medication was that Again, I started to get to know people who had very severe issues of mental health and people who are uh, struggling with addiction. And I started going, man, what I'm going through looks a lot more like those that second category than the first. So I started telling my therapist at this place in, in Massachusetts that I want to try getting off drugs. And I have his, his notes. I opened records, requested them about a year ago. And a couple of years ago, and and it, there, it's tough to read when if you want to if you want to feel terrible about yourself, read what your therapist has to say about you when you're at your absolute worst. But the day that I came into his office and said I want to get off drugs is in there, and he talks about how, you know, he kind of agrees with me that man these drugs aren't really helping him. But then he says, okay, I would be okay with him getting off them if the goal was to start back off on new drugs, and I wasn't trying to do that. I wanted yeah. to get off completely. So, uh, finally a, a pretty horrible issue. I've been there for two and a half months and the young woman who became my best friend, uh, attempted suicide and I stopped her. And that night I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And luckily, uh, while I was there against my will, I wasn't like committed. I was able to yeah, yeah. Uh, sign myself out and I did. And, uh, I, I was there for just over three months. I left on new year's Eve of 2009 and spent the next three months living with my grandparents in Sedona, Arizona, uh, withdrawing because uh, it, it took me three months to slowly step down off all these drugs. Uh, Clonopin by itself, if I had stopped, I, I would have immediately died. I mean, it's, it's so terrible for you. Um, and so by the time I was, I was done, I was sort of, you know, I then had to go through about five years of, of really serious personal and mental growth. And um, you know, there's still a little bit of, of lasting impact, like I referenced earlier, but uh, it's sort of now at the 10 year mark, I feel, you know, about 85, 90%. And I feel like that's, that's where I'm going to be. So um, that that's the longer or the short condensed version <laughs> yeah. of what is a much longer story. No, for sure. And one thing I, I just want to sort of go back to when you started that off and talked about like sort of the effects that these chemicals are having on your brain because you started at such a young age. Because something that comes up for me, and and again, I know it's maybe I, maybe the advertising is different there than it is here, but I see advertising all the time and for marijuana. And they say, don't start taking marijuana before the age of like 25 because of the effects that it'll have on your brain. Yet I've never seen a commercial that says, <laughs> don't start taking all these other chemicals before you're 25. Yet it yeah. seems to me that it would be almost the same thing and, and, and if not worse in some ways. So I don't know, it's just something that came to mind as you were saying that about how like you're such a young age and you're putting all these chemicals into your body. Of course, it's going to have some sort of effect yet. Nobody's really, again, talking about that. Um, and then the next thing for me is, is to me, it's, What's interesting about that story is that you're the, the catalyst for you to sort of, you know, walk away or, or start moving away from this was sort of something that uh, you were like, I don't know, forced into is maybe not the right word, but like being thrown into that, that sort of cell is what pulled you away. And so it's almost like your, your worst moment is what sort of leveraged your best moment, if that makes yeah. sense. Oh, 100%. Uh, so first, your, your first point, we now have a lot of data that says that exactly what you just said. Um, they haven't really done the studies on these sorts of drugs yet, but uh, they used, there's a really famous study about alcohol use and the people who uh, experiment heavily before they, they did like before 12, before 15, before 21. And it goes exponentially higher that they'll have issues of addiction uh, to the point where if you experiment when you're like a preteen, it's like one to two, like like one out of every two people is going to struggle with addiction. So a hundred percent, it does affect your brain. We now know this. I, I hope to some sort of your point that they end up doing some of these studies about these prescription drugs as well. And Yes. I mean, being my back being forced against this wall, you know, I, I, it wasn't quite enough when I was just in this long term, like I really wanted to get off the drugs, but I still didn't have that oomph to, to really do something. Uh, but the night, like I said, that I saved, you know, that, that young woman who became a close friend, uh, when I, I stopped her from killing herself, that was it. That was the catalyst to say, I got to get out of here. I got to start doing something different. But the moment 
so, you know, all of us in recovery, we all have our moment, right? Our, our moment of, okay, this is the, this is the, where the V curve starts going back up again. And for me, it was sitting on a, on a dirty carpet and a truck stop, <clears throat> excuse me. It was sitting on a dirty carpet in a truck stop motel in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I was stranded there. I was, I was in a, a car wreck. My car uh, was not drivable. And I was sitting on this dirty carpet alone on, on January 2nd of 2010. And it was my come to Jesus moment. And I, I'm not religious. Um, I, I was raised Jewish. I still am socially Jewish and, and culturally Jewish. But uh, I sort of had that moment where all of us, a lot of us who go through this, I reached out and said, please, for the love of God, please, someone come help me. And I didn't get anything. I got nothing in return. And that was the moment for me that I went, all right, I am completely alone if I'm going to do this, I have to do this myself. I have to put my recovery on my back. I have to do this uh, the way that I need to do this. And that was this coming back up moment. And uh, I, I think about that moment a lot. I, it was sort of the next couple of years that was my looking back moment. Um, and and I, I liked it when I give speeches, which is sort of my main work is, is public speaking. I like to reference Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It's a very small town in Pennsylvania that nobody, nobody is from <laughs> that I, I, I speak to. And uh, it's sort of to me that, that I never want to find myself back in Johnstown, Pennsylvania kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's good to have, I guess, that anchor, that memory to sort of <laughs> to, to keep you going, right? If, yeah. if that's what, you know, you're, the thought you have to go back to. Something else I, I just wanted to ask was, you know, your parents being supportive as at a younger age, you know, putting you into therapy, sort of, you know, like you said, you weren't, uh, you know, handcuffed and forced to go to the inpatient care, but, you know, they, they definitely obviously had a, a part in getting you there. But then you said when you went into recovery, you went to stay with your grandparents. Just yep. what, what, what was the reason there? Was there a reason that you decided to go to somebody else aside from your parents? Oh, yeah. They wouldn't take me back. Uh, they, oh, okay. they didn't want me to leave the, the inpatient center. Uh, the only person who would was my, my grandmother, who is my, my guardian angel. She's amazing. Um, she and her, her, my grandfather uh, said that I could come live with them because nobody else. I said, look, I'm leaving. Like there's nothing. I, no one will stop me. My parents said no. And so my grandmother said, come, come here. So uh, and put me up for the next three months as I went through, you know, the, the sort of spiritual, physical and mental pain that is detoxing. Um, and you know, mine took so long, like I said, cause I was on so many drugs that to go through what they call a step down method where you take a little bit less of the drug each day, it took me three months because I was on so many that to do that properly, it took a lot of time. Uh, and the last one was particularly painful. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely feel for my grandmother having to watch me just in agony for like three straight months. No. And I, just for me, what, what really stood out was when you said your grandmother was your guardian angel, because I had very strong relationships with a couple of my grandparents as well. And unfortunately they both passed in the last couple of years. Um, but I can definitely, I can definitely relate with how sort of that person, like my, my grandmother on my dad's side, when I decided to move out in my last year of college, and this is in no way comparing one story to the other, but when I decided to move out in my last year of college uh, to live with a girl that I thought was you know, the right decision, you know, she was no problem, like, you know, taking me back when things didn't work out. And um, she was an incredible woman and taught me a lot about just life and family and, and a lot of other things. So I can definitely appreciate that, that person, that relationship that you would have had with, uh, with your, your grandmother. And I'm glad she was there for you because I think it, it's safe to say that she's probably a part of the reason that you're here right now on this podcast. Oh, a hundred percent. I, you know, there, there are, I like to say this a lot that very rarely in life is there like a one-to-one -one ratio where this happened and then this happened because of it. And that is, that is one of them that, you know, if, if she hadn't taken me in, who knows where I would have gone because I probably would have been living out of my car. Um, and, and I was very lucky that she did. And uh, definitely a hundred percent that I'm, I'm here because she was willing to do so. Oh, for sure. So I don't, I don't know if there's, I mean, you've shared quite a bit. Is there any other stories or anything else that you want to share um, uh, in terms of like your whole journey? Cause like, I mean, like you said, you've covered quite a bit, but I feel like there might still be some more to share. So here's the funny thing. The, the story about vulnerability that I wanted to tell coming in, we haven't gotten to yet. So uh, that is this, when I was five years in recovery, uh, this was 2015, obviously, 
I had yet to really talk to people about this. I had friends, very close friends who knew like that I had just disappeared for a year. Like they didn't know what had happened to me because I was, I wore my recovery as a mark of shame, not as a mark of success. And, and that is not uncommon. The stigma around issues of addiction and mental health are very strong. Um, but there was one moment to change all that. And there's a good friend of mine uh, who runs an organization in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's called Cincy Stories. I grew up in Cincinnati, I was born and raised there, and I lived there until very recently. My wife and I moved to South Carolina. But uh, this organization brings influential and well-known Cincinnatians on stage uh, to talk about their sort of origin story, right? And he knew I was in recovery. And so he said, would you tell that story? And I said, hell no, I'm not going to tell that story. Uh, no chance in hell. And he said, okay, okay. And then he asked me again. And I said, dude, it's just not going to happen, man. And then he asked me a third time. And I still said, no, stop it. It ain't going to happen. Uh, and then I happened to be at home visiting my, my parents, uh, having dinner with them. And my dad was sitting in his office and he was reading the New York Times. I remember this scene vividly. And I walk in and I said, uh, you know, let me tell you about this. And I told him this scenario where my buddy was trying to get me to tell this story. And he, he lowers the paper and he goes, why wouldn't you do it? And I said, well, you know, I'm terrified. I, I don't know how people are going to react if they find out that I'm in recovery. And he looks at me and he goes, fear is never a good reason not to do something. And then he lifts back up the paper as if he didn't just blow up my entire world with one sentence, you know? <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I kind of left that night going, I mean, I guess he is right. Like fear is not a good reason not to do something. So I called my buddy and I was like, let's get, let's get breakfast. And uh, we sat down and I said, ask me again. And he said, will you do it? And I said, yes. And then I freaked out <laughs> because then I have to do it, you know? So um, I, I went about writing how I was going to tell this story the first time. And I wrote it like four different ways. I gave it uh, to a friend of mine, who a very close friend who I knew I could get honest feedback. And she was crying at the end. And she was like, that was beautiful. And I was like, all right, I've got this. I can do this. So I get up on stage. It's election night of 2015. And um, I tell this story and half the audience, the audience is about 100 to 150 people. And half the audience are people that I either know really well or, or acquaintances. I would say of those that half, maybe five know that I'm in recovery. And I get off stage and I'm, I go immediately to the bar. And by the way, I'm in recovery, but I'm not sober. I, alcohol was never an issue with me. Thank you. God, uh, because I, my <laughs> wife and I are both, you know, big fans of wine and whiskey, and I can use both of those safely in the way that I cannot do so with prescription pills. Or I was also big into cocaine. Anyway, uh, so I go straight to <laughs> the bar. Story. Yeah, right. And I and I get myself a, a whiskey, and I'm like shaking. I'm like, I can't believe I just did that. And I sit there. I'm just like sitting by myself. I'm like, okay, that's it. You know, I've told the story. Everyone's gonna shun me now. This is whatever. And the crush of people that came over and were like crying and hugging me and telling me how amazing this was. And, uh, it was overwhelming that night. And, um, one of my brothers was there he came over and gave me a huge hug and was like, oh, like just bawling. And so it was so incredible that, that immediately the ball started rolling and I was invited to do a Ted talk not long after that, uh, at one of their small local events. And that night, uh, the, still the most amazing moment of any speaking I've ever done. This is uh, late 2015, maybe early 2016. Uh, I tell my story and I did a five minute version, very short. And I get off stage and the manager, it's, it's in a, it's in an event space and the manager comes over and says, please come with me. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I come with him and he takes me to the kitchen and every single person, like this was a house thing. Every single person there was in recovery. It was, it was, they only hired people in recovery. Like the manager was in recovery. So he only hired people in recovery. And we ended up sitting down and just like all like eight or nine of us talking for like half an hour. I mean, we're bawling. There's not a dry eye in the place. And, um, you know, it, it was a beautiful moment. And from there, the, the ball has just kept rolling. And here I am in 2020, working on a book, hosting a podcast, uh, speaking all the time and, and uh, coaching and consulting and all of that because uh, my dad blew up my world <laughs> with, one, with sentence. one sentence. And that was that fear is not a good reason not to do something.
no, I, I like that's incredible for one, but I can't tell you like literally chills down my body when you said that you did that one event and the event manager took you in there and here's, you know, a kitchen full of people. And I can't imagine how that even started to shift, you know, the way that you were thinking and, and how it started the ball rolling and the other things that you're doing. Because to me, when moments like that happen, I don't know, like I was, I, I've, said this before on other podcasts but like I don't believe in coincidences I just too many things have happened in the last few years of my life that just make me not believe in coincidences anymore and for you to sort of be in that moment at that point in time it just seems to me like that must like I don't know it, it must have felt pretty incredible to walk in there and be able to not only relate with those people but I can imagine in some ways probably help them Oh, a hundred percent. I, you know, I like to think that it, it definitely helped people to uh, feel more comfortable with it. I think that's sort of the big piece about vulnerability, right? Is that vulnerability begets vulnerability is, is if you give it, it comes back to you because mm -hmm. people recognize that. So I definitely think that that was a big piece of it in that, you know, they had the, the speakers on and everyone could hear all the talks. And obviously, if I don't give that talk and all those people in that kitchen, we don't end up having that moment together because, you know, they understood that, okay, this is a person who understands. And yeah. uh, I think that's what's so beautiful about it, especially the recovery community is that, you know, my story of struggling with addiction to prescription pills is incredibly different from the person who's struggling with alcohol abuse or a person who, you know, on and on and on. But we all have been through those key moments, right? Our, our rock bottom moment, our uh, first desire to get, you know, enter recovery. And while there is a divide between people who believe that recovery means 12 step and it means only being sober and people who are different ends of different spectrums in the recovery community, we all have that in common. Common, and it is a thing that instantly binds you to someone else in that community. Um, and I can't tell you on my podcast, I do a, a little bit where uh, at the beginning of every episode, there's a shout out from someone. And so many of those are just uh, people saying, I gotta be honest, I've never really told this before. And then they, you know, and I've had people tell me their personal stories and then afterwards start crying and give me a hug and say, I've never told anyone that, you know, and it's because we all have this bond, uh, uh, bind together, this, this, this commonality that, uh, allows us to really be there and understand the other person. No, and, and I'm so glad you said that because that's one of the keys to what I'm trying to do with this podcast is provide relatability and not everybody's going to be able to relate with your story or episode number 10 or episode number, but there's always probably going to be that one listener that's going to relate in some shape or form. And, and I just hope that it helps them by having that person that they can relate to, because I think a lot of what holds us back as human beings and, and puts us in that space of fear is because we feel alone, like nobody understands us when chances are there's at least another person and if not another hundred people that understand what you're going through. So I, I definitely love what you had to say there. So That's if you beautifully sort of, said, beautifully said, thank, thank you. you for doing that. Thank you. So if you can look at like sort of, I guess the toll uh, emotionally, physically, socially, whatever way you want to look at it, or always you want to look at it, what would you say the toll of everything that happened over those first, I guess it was 25 years or so of your life. Well, what did that take? Like, what did that take out of you? Oh man. Uh, that is such a great question. I, I, I like to say that being in recovery is both the first line of my obituary and the last line of my bio. Uh, hmm. You know, it is, it is who I am to a core and not in the sense of, you know, uh, I carry that burden with me every day, but at the opposite of like, this is what has made me who I am. And um, in both good ways and bad ways, you know, like I said, with the sort of the thing about, uh, not being sure how much of my memories are gone and how many are buried. There are other things like that that are negatives. Um, you know, my brain is, is definitely healed to the point where it's not nearly as bad as it was eight, nine, or, or even five years ago. But there are some still, there are some little things that I kind of go, oh man, I wish that wasn't true. Uh, but on the flip side, it's much more positive. It, it definitely allows me to be more empathetic and to relate to people in a way that I don't think I, I was. Um, I, I, I like to say that it took me struggling with addiction to recognize that I was kind of an asshole before <laughs> before I, I got into recovery. And then, you know, I don't know how much of that was because I was a teenager whose brain was being messed around with chemicals. But I definitely think that it has allowed me to be a more empathetic person and to be a person who um, connects with people in a, in a much deeper way. And I really cherish that. Uh, you know, I, I, during this period, the coronavirus, 
I've had so many people reach out because most of what I post about now on social media is basically like, please do that. Please reach out. Please, you know, if you need someone to listen, I'm here. And I've been flooded with people who just want an ear. And and some of it's coaching. Some of it's people going, you know, please give me some of your tips and all that kind of thing. But a lot of it is just people going, I don't know how to feel. Am I allowed to be angry with my coworker? Uh, am I allowed to be frustrated that my wife said this to me while people are literally dying, you know, dying in tens of thousands. And so like that's those, this is a very common emotion right now is people not feeling like they're allowed to have their feelings. And so just being there for people has been uh, very fulfilling for me. It, it makes me, when I go to bed at night feeling like I've had a positive impact, it makes me feel really good. Uh, there's a lot of science behind that, that nothing uh, makes us feel better as people than helping others. And some of that is selfishness because there's a little bit of peace in there that goes, well, at least I'm not <laughs> there, but they're about the grace of God go I kind of thing. And a lot of it is just that connection to other people. So that is 100% because I'm in recovery. I mean, who knows where I would be if it, if it wasn't for that. Um, you know, obviously there are so many different pathways, but, uh, that this part doing what I do now is 100% because I'm in recovery. No, I, I, the amount of solid points that you brought up there is like, <laughs> my brain was just like, yes, 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 yes. Cause like you talked about empathy, which I think is a huge thing that more of us need to practice in some shape or form. You talked about being in service of others, which is, I, I, I know as well from just from even this podcast alone that I started six months ago, the way that I've seen it impact from people that have reached out and stuff like that makes me feel better than anything else that I've ever done in my life. And then even the other part that I related with funny enough is that like, in my past, you know, doing the career that I was doing and the job that I was doing, I think it made me a little more of a miserable human being and sort of an asshole. Uh, and I don't know if that's all it was, but there was definitely a, a different me, you know, three, four years ago than there is now. And and so it's just interesting to me that you know, whatever, whatever it might have been, when we realize that we're not in a place where we should be, and we get to the place where maybe we should, the differences that it can make in just our own personal lives and our attitudes and everything like that. So again, I just wanted to, to touch on a few of those things. So <clears throat> would you say at this point right now where you're at, and I feel like I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyways, <laughs> would you say that you feel like you've, you've found success and fulfillment in your life? Or would you say that you're still on a journey towards that? I would say both. I would say the answer is 100% both of those. I, I, so First off, what you just said is beautiful. And I, I have a job coach that I worked with who I was, I was actually working in politics um, and I loved it because it felt very similar to chasing that high. I mean, on the election day, oh my God, man, the greatest high of my life was winning an election. <laughs> but uh, she helped me understand the difference between liking my work or even loving my work, being personally fulfilled. And you can love what you're doing, but I came home every night I needed to have a drink. I needed to, like my wife, my at the time girlfriend couldn't talk to me for, I was just on edge. And now, now my life is my work, but in a, in a healthy way, not a, you know, and, and that is that, yeah, sometimes I need my wife to wait a half an hour for dinner, but it's because I'm on a zoom call helping someone who's bawling, talking about their recent experiences. And I feel like I feel for them, but I also personally feel much more fulfilled. But as a, as a solo person, it's a constant road that we walk. You know, I, I am very pleased with the amount of positive impact I get to have in who I am now as a person. But you know, there are days that my wife and I have an argument. There are days where I get up and I go to bed and go, man, I didn't help a single person today. And you know, that's going to be how it is. But at the same time, as long as we're always striving towards that goal, that's the best we can do. No, for sure. And I think that that's a great way to end this sort of that I was saying, doing the best that we can do. The other thing that I want to pick up on from what you said is uh, in a few years back, uh, a family member of mine said, work is what you do for a living. It's not your life. But I like what you had to say there where your life is your work. And because I, I think a lot of people look at it the other way around, like work is their life. Like, because we rely so much on our jobs for like paying for, you know, our bills and this and that we, we all look at it the other way around. I mean, even myself, you know, 
for years being in sales, I was always working, whether I was on vacation or after hours, even my wife, same thing, you know, in her corporate career, just working like till 10 o'clock at night. And then I, I, I've seen myself shift for sure. And her start shift as well, where it's like, okay, you know what, there's life and there's work and I need to divide the two because otherwise it just, it becomes overwhelming. So I just, I, I wanted to sort of hit on what you said there, where your life is your work now, which I think is something that we should all sort of strive for. And it might not happen overnight. It might take a few years, but I think we should all be striving to make our life, our work, not our work, our life. hundred percent. Beautifully said. And, and, you know, I, I quick plug of, of what I do. So that's kind of not exactly what I teach, but very close. And it's my, the way I describe it is it's called choose your struggle, right? That's my brand. That's my hashtag. I wear a bracelet on my wrist every day that says it. Um, essentially what it is, is that for a long time, I didn't get to choose what I struggled for. I, my, my, my struggle was getting through the day and not withdrawing from my extreme addiction. Uh, my struggle was just getting off the couch. And now as an adult, I get to choose what I struggle for. Now as someone who is in recovery, I, I get to choose what I struggle for. And we live in a society that wants to make that choice for us all the time. You know, today we have to care about this thing tomorrow. It's this thing. And all these are good causes. Don't get me wrong, but, we cannot care about everything all the time. Yeah. We also should not allow our employer to decide what our you know, struggle is going to be for. We shouldn't allow our parents, our wife, our husband, whoever it is. We should be seeking that road that is our path. And if you do it well, if you figure out a way, you can be both fulfilled and you can be successful in whatever term you decide success means. How often do we actually take a step back and say, all right, I want this thing because I want it. Or is it I want this thing because I've been told I should want this. Yeah. Uh, for me, that was re very recently, I had to step back and realize this drive towards financial success was not a thing that I was choosing. My wife and I are very lucky. We are very privileged. And yet I was chasing, this was as recently as last year, I was going into every day with how much with the, the dollar sign is the goal. Yeah, yeah. And I got sick of it, man. I was miserable. And then I took a step back and realized we're not going to be homeless. We live just fine. We have plenty of money. We're very privileged. What am I chasing money so hard for? And I started chasing instead that feeling of fulfillment, that feeling of helping others. And I have been so happy. I have been so at peace and I've done better work. Uh, and it really is that readjustment that we have to go through. And I wasn't living my own, you know, ideas of success. Yeah. No, I, I'm smiling ear to ear right now because I can't wait to release this one because everything you just said there <laughs> is, I think, the key to a lot of us becoming a lot happier in life. And and I speak on fulfillment all the time and how I realized in the last few years of my life that fulfillment is way more important than a lot of those other things that you brought up. Like I was the same person chasing money, chasing, you know, a definition of success that wasn't defined by me. And the biggest thing I think I can take away from that was that we have to sort of take a step back and look at our, look within ourselves because I think a lot of us were, like you said, we're focused on impressing other people, getting acknowledgement from other people, whatever it might be. And yet we don't take enough time to sort of look within and say, what do I want? And, and I've done that over the last few years. And like you, it's provided a lot of, uh, of peace and, and fulfillment in my life. So just so many, so many <laughs> great points there. And am I right in assuming, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but am I right in assuming that you've actually been more successful since you've done that? Because you're not chasing the wrong things anymore. You're chasing yeah. the right idea of success, and that's your idea of success. No, 100%, exactly. And I think that, like, for me, success, like I said, has become defined now by having fulfillment in my life. A buddy of mine, his his definition sticks with me, like, all the time because I, I just love what he says. And he says, happiness equals success, not the other way around. Because a lot of people look at when I'm successful, I'll be happy. And it shouldn't be that way. It should be happiness equals success. And and I, I keep that in the back of my head at all times. That's beautifully so, said. Thank you. So getting to towards the end here, um, you know, if somebody were to listen back to this, there's a ton of lessons that they can learn from your experience, whether they've gone through addiction or not. But if you could give people three key takeaways, three important lessons that you've learned uh, from your life that you could implement, that they could implement into wherever they're going in their life or whatever struggles they're facing, what would those three lessons be? 
Yeah. So number one, every time I get a chance to say this, I I say it over again because my dad was right. Fear is never a good reason not to do something. Yes. If you're standing on the edge of a cliff. Okay. We're not talking about that type of fear. We're talking about when you cannot identify the actual fear, or if you are the one creating that fear, like I was, I'd already decided that everyone was going to shun me if they found out I was in recovery. First off, zero people shunned me. So clearly I was creating that. So number one, fear is not a good reason not to do something. Um, Number two is what I like to call the most ways method. Uh, That's what I teach from. Uh, Essentially, it's this. Most ways will get us to where we're already going, right? If you you get to a, a, a junction, and all of them are heading off in that direction, most of them are going to get you to where you're already heading anyways. But the most important ones, the most important choices we make, they actually, they don't change where we're going. They change who we are when we get there. Yes, occasionally one will change where you're headed, but most of the time they actually change who you are as a person once you get to where you are going. So if you change that mindset and it's like, okay, I'm already headed in this direction. Who do I want to be when I arrive? And then you make your decisions based on that idea instead of where do you want to go, it completely changes the game. So that's number two. Think about who you want to be and not where you want to end up. Number three, like I said, choose your struggle. Wake up every day and decide, okay, this is what I care about. This is what's important to me. Uh, You know, whether it's being a good person or whether it's helping other people. Uh, whatever you want that struggle to be. Hey, some days, if you just say, I got to make my money today to support my family, have the idea be to make, you know, support your family, not just make a bunch of money. Because at that point, you know, what does that look like? What is, what is that level of success? So instead decide what you want to, uh, to accomplish, choose your struggle and everything else will fall into place. No, solid three, <laughs> solid three. And I, I definitely relate with a bunch of them. And the last one there I think is is really important because I think a lot of us, like I said before, we get bogged down with all these different things that we think we have to focus on or like shiny object syndrome. And and yet if we were to just sort of, you know, sort of limit it down and choose like one struggle to deal with at a time, we'd be able to be more productive. So solid, solid three there. So lastly, I just want to give you an opportunity as a guest and for taking the time to come on here and share so openly to just sort of plug whatever you're up to, promote whatever you're up to. So go ahead. The floor is yours. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Um, and this is a very, very important topic. And it's one that we need to be talking about more. Uh, vulnerability and empathy, I think, are, are missing to an, a dangerous extent. Uh, obviously, in our world politics, I mean, good Lord. But, um, <laughs> but even just in the way we interact with each other, I mean, we are, we are forgetting to lead with empathy, and it's scary. So thank you for, for covering these topics. Um, so uh, you can find me on a lot of social media. LinkedIn is where I'm the most active. J a y s h r f m a n. Same thing on Facebook. On Twitter, I am J b Schiffman. On Instagram, the next Schiffman. Um, but most importantly, check out my website, jshiffman.com and my podcast, the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I started it back in February when it looked like this was going to be as bad as as they thought it was going to be because as a public speaker, uh, if I can't be out in front of audiences, you know, that's pretty much my, my impact. So, uh, it's taken off, which I'm very thankful for. I, I, between you and me didn't think it was going to be this popular. I thought, Hey, if some people listen, great. And it's been pretty popular, which is awesome. And I'm getting really great guests. Uh, Brian, I got to get you on there sometime. Well, I'll add you to the list, man. We'll, we'll, we'll do this the other direction. So, uh, definitely check out the choose your struggle podcast and, uh, thank you all for, for talking about these issues and you know what show vulnerable, show vulnerability and show empathy because it's crazy important. No, definitely. And I think what one thing I want to say there is that I think where you are definitely winning in terms of the podcast is because your goal wasn't to have such a huge, like a huge number of listeners. It was like you said, it was like if a few people, if a few people listen, that's good enough. And that's sort of where I started as well. And now I'm, I'm seeing pretty good growth as well. So I'm glad that that's where you started. And I think it's a good tip for people that are maybe looking to start one as well. So well, thank, thank you again, Jay. Like I said, I appreciate you coming on here. These stories to me are 
uh, it just, I don't know. I said this, I think a couple podcast episodes ago, it humbles me that people are willing to come on here and share so openly because I'm not really anybody. I don't know a whole lot about this subject. This was something that I started an article series that didn't work out and I decided let's turn it into a podcast. And now it's just, like I said, I just appreciate the fact that you have the willingness and the trust to come on here and, and share with my listeners. And, and I know that this one's definitely going to have an impact. So, you know, thank you for your time and, and thank you for, for sharing like you did. No, thank you for having me, man. And, and, and you know what? Like I said, I want to get you on and I want to hear the story of that turn, starting this podcast, turning it you know, from something that wasn't working and something that's awesome. So those are the stories that I love because too often we hear the opposite is I tried, didn't work out, and now I'm doing something <laughs> else. But you went, I tried, and now I'm doing something even more amazing. And that's awesome. So I definitely want to hear that. Let's set up a time for you to, you to come on mine. Awesome, man. That sounds like a good idea. Take care. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow the podcast on Instagram at vulnerable.podcast or on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also follow me, Brian Almeida, by searching my name on all platforms. If the podcast has impacted you in any way, I would also greatly appreciate a review. Lastly, if you know anyone with a great story of going from struggle to success, I would love to have them on. Thank you and see you next week.